It's nice to have a sense as we settle in. For most of us, you know, it was a big push to sign up for the retreat, to get here today, to make all the arrangements, connect with their roommates, those of you with roommates, and And all, you know, just amazing how much thought goes into creating these events. And so, in a very real sense, the work has been done. And now our practice isn't so much to feel like we have a mountain we're going to climb here. There's often in life and also in spiritual circles a kind of a boot camp mentality. And it isn't so much that uh, there isn't, I mean, there is a lot that needs to happen, but the idea that I have to do it, and I'm bad if I don't do it, and I'm good if I do do it, that idea isn't very helpful. Because the, you know, from the way the Buddha analyzed, understood our human situation, the problem is a problem of understanding. It's not so much that I have to go from A to B and then I'll be saved, as much as it is, I'm not really understanding what this is or how this is, this experience as a human being. So the idea of the structure of the retreat, the schedule that Roger reviewed, and I'm sure some of you or all of you maybe by now have looked at the schedule, where we have some times that are really suitable for sitting quietly, usually in this room, but could be elsewhere, times for walking practice, sipping tea practice, meeting in small group practice, using the bathroom practice. I mean, hopefully the word practice doesn't push your buttons. (laughs) Because you could just call it being, you know. We'll be in the meditation hall, then we'll be at our walking place, and we'll be in the dining room doing what we do in the dining room, and then we'll be in the bathroom doing what we do there, and we'll be in our small group. And the idea, and this is also true in the formal sitting times, when we give the mind some activity to be with the breath or be with the sensations of the body or be with the experience of hearing or be with the activity of mind that comes and goes. So the whole container, the whole structure is designed to be palatable and hopefully in moments beautiful, simple, harmonious, trustworthy, so we can really give ourselves to it wholeheartedly for these four days. I'm just going to be on retreat. And this, of course, feeds into what I was saying about our electronic devices and other ways that we might want to fill the space of our mind, like it would be very easy to spend a good chunk of our time 
trying to figure out who everybody is, just based on our little sneaks, sneak peeks, you know, where we actually look at each other. Oh, according to the clothes you're wearing, according to the way you carry your body, according to the way you look, you know, this is who I think you are. No, 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 that's not right. This is who I think you are, you know. And it's like we literally construct meaning. It would be meaningful for me to know, have an opinion about everybody. But of course, when we look at that, we realize it's not, it's not that that's evil to do that if you're gonna, if you want to spend your weekend doing that. But it doesn't lead anywhere, right? And there's any number of things we could do. A good friend of mine who was a very serious practitioner during one nine-day retreat, this is a long time ago in the 90s, we were driving back from the retreat together, and he said during the retreat he just couldn't stop himself from figuring out the top 20 movies of all time in the right order. (laughs) I mean, you can just imagine that kind of obsessive delusion. We call it in these sort of retreat contexts, yogi mind. You've already heard that word. We try to tease it out of our vocabulary, but it, I think it's just stuck. So if you're new to retreats, please excuse us for using that word yogi. But uh, in the tradition, a yogi is just anybody who's doing sort of committed re- spiritual practice. That makes you a yogi. So if you have a yogi job, that just means you're a retreatant who has a mindful service job during the retreat but we call it yogi job. Or you have a yogi mind when the mind, because it doesn't, it hasn't learned how to just give itself to the activity of the retreat, doing whatever's next, sitting and being with the breath or being with the body, the sensation in the body, being with hearing, being with the neurotic activity of the mind. Being with it means being aware. Oh, it's like this now. Instead, it seems really important to do something. So that's, in a, you know, if you want sort of a provocative term, that's our enemy. Feeling like you need to get somewhere, figure something out. And a lot of times we come to retreats, like I'm coming here to work out this issue in my life. But you can put that down. We're really coming here, you know, Uh, we have this phrase in Buddhism, entering the stream. Entering the stream of Dhamma, the way it is. Learning how to be with the way it is, which is a stream, because this is all process, without friction. I'm not saying we're going to have that beautiful, perfect release, freedom, but that's why we're here, to release into the stream of being. So anytime we feel like I personally have to do something, prove that I can do this retreat, prove that I'm a good meditator, prove that I'm a good roommate by leaving my bed really neat, prove that, you know, I'm not a pig by not, you know, not letting people see how much I eat, whatever sort of construction your mind has that you feel compelled to do, then you want to notice that. Oh, it's not about me doing anything. It's about entering this stream. 
And the stream, it's already the stream. So it's not like I have to create the stream. I just need to trust it. So I thought as a theme, we could look at fear and non-fear. And the entering the stream is moments, experiences, moments of experiencing non-fear, non-resistance, non-constriction. And there will be moments of just walking, just breathing being known, just thinking being known, just sipping tea being known, just cleaning the bathroom being known, just lying in bed being known. And no body constructing the sense of somebody who has to do something, somebody who needs to fix something, somebody who thinks it should be other than the way that it is, which means anxiety and fear. You know, as soon as the mind has constructed the notion that I'd prefer it another way, I'd prefer to be in bed, I'm a little tired having done everything I've done today, if only I were in bed, if only this were all done. Now that thought may arise, but we can just let that be the activity of the moment instead of contracting around it and then building on it. Thich Nhat Hanh says the only real en- enemy is forgetfulness, or you could say distraction. So we want to be really interested in distraction. That's really the only work in the retreat, is remembering to notice distraction. And it's, of course, as soon as you notice the distraction, you're not distracted anymore. So you notice your you know, I'll do my friend, and you want to do the top 100 films, followed by the top 100 TV shows, you know. And then, you know, all the other things that we could figure out, like, should I finally switch from Apple products to Android products? Is this the time to make that switch in my life? Or, you know, is this the time to sell my car and get a hybrid? And these things we can really, it seems important. When they come up, the mind takes the bait. But as soon as you notice that that's what the mind has done, then you don't need to be frustrated or judgmental because now the mind is aware. Well, this is just obsessive thinking being known. It's just that. And we enter the stream of knowing of that reflective knowing, it's like this now. It's just this being known. Is there a problem with that? Can there be a freedom, no matter what arises, internally, externally? Can we allow the process of this retreating, this body and mind being here for these days, can we allow that to be in moments at least, a frictionless unfolding. Now this is being known. One of the mantras I've liked a lot lately is, sometimes it's like this. You know, you could spend your whole weekend, that would be a sufficient practice, would be a profound practice. 
just in a relaxed way, whether you actually use the phrase in your mind or not, but the attitude, the way of relating would be, oh, now it's like this. Sometimes it's like this. Now it's like this. Well, sometimes it's like this. And now sometimes it's like this. So when you get in a funk, sometimes it's like this. When you're feeling ecstatic and alive, sometimes it's like this. When you're feeling bored, sometimes it's like that. So the mind is simply allowing the natural process of life unfolding. Now the thing about that is we'll learn quite a bit in that it's not like people get afraid when you hear spiritual instructions like that, like, well, but I don't want things to continue as they're continuing. But you see that process uh, sets in motion the most efficient learning or insight because you, we can't really see more clearly, clearly, deeply the way it is when we're involved with trying to fix our life. That messing with life, that involvement, distorts the activity of the moment. So we don't really learn anything. It's like, you know, we say sometimes well, we're just confirming our own beliefs. I knew this wasn't going to work. Hasn't that crept into your meditation sometimes? Like, oh yeah, I'm going to sit because everybody else is, but I know it's not going to work. <laughs> I know I'm not going to have a good sit. <clears throat> and some of you might even already have concluded, I knew this wasn't going to be a good retreat. <laughs> or even those of you who will even up that, I knew this wasn't going to be a good life. <laughs> and then, of course, we go about confirming the reality that we've set in motion. You know, this won't be a good retreat, this won't be a good sit, this won't be a good life. There's an interesting article um, by Ajahn Tanisaro, a well-known Buddhist monk, Western monk, and a wonderful scholar as well, practitioner, ace meditator, very prolific author. And uh, he has a series of books called Meditations, Meditation 1, Meditation 2, Meditation 3. I think now he could be up to Meditation 6. And this short little articles uh, that first were just uh, talks that he gave at the monastery. He is the abbot of uh, just outside of San Diego. It's called Wat Metta. Wat just means monastery and Thai and metta is the Pali word for loving kindness or basic friendliness of the heart, goodwill. So he's the abbot there. gives a talk um, when he's in residence every morning, sort of a guided meditation slash short talk. <clears throat> and uh, then they get recorded and put it to these books. And one talk was on fears. It's the title of it. It's in the first collection called Meditations. And he talks about just the relevance of fear, you know, that reverberation in our heart, that basic uneasiness in the heart. And of course, it can have different origins. 
So part of what happens as we resolve or intend to enter the stream to allow the nature of this body, the nature of this mind, the nature of everything to do what nature does. What does nature do? Nature just moves. Every single aspect of nature is in motion. And the mind is in motion, emotions are in motion, sensations of the body are in motion, everything in and around us is in motion. That motion is inherently effortless in the sense that there isn't ever, there isn't ever a somebody doing the motion. It's so neat, you know, being out in the country where we get the bigger vistas, especially if you take that walk that Sister Monique mentioned where you go down the driveway, take a left at the highway, the county road, for just a couple hundred meters, and then take your first right up a gravel road, and it just kind of goes through the country. And there are a few trees, but mostly you're out in the open, and you just have these big vistas. And... It's just interesting anyway, most of us living in the city, being in that open space, it does something for our mind. Same with being on the side of a lake. That's why people like to be in the mountains or be in the plains or being on the edges of lakes and oceans because that open space does something to our mind, which tends to be involved in contracted activity of getting and doing and ending and struggling and resisting. So the point I was going to make, though, about these big vistas is, you know, you can just see weather systems blow in. You know, you have a nice sunny day and then on the edge of the horizon and then the wind shifts and the, and all of a sudden it can be very quick. But, you know, in a couple hours it can be dramatically different. Or even forget about a shift in weather, just the turning of the earth and the shift of the time from sunny afternoon to dusk to dark the shift of temperature and it's just really interesting or you could do a seasonal change which of course takes a little longer but these huge changes that that happen without anybody doing anything I mean, imagine, I mean, this would be such a, a useful example of being neurotic. Imagine if somebody mistakenly thought they did that transition from sunny afternoon to the darkness of night. Okay, here we go. It's getting close to sunset. And we made it a personal effort. It, it's funny to think about these sort of things, but in a way, we do this. You ever notice when you're watching movies and somebody's exerting themselves that we kind of, you know, are in that exertion mode a little bit? Or when my cat is dreaming, you know, have you ever seen your cat sort of do that killing bite when they're sleeping? <laughs> well, we kind of do the same thing, you know, where we literally create the idea, the sense of meaning of doing and accomplishing and being responsible for the activity of our life. And often, 
the activity around us too. But we can cultivate a different perception and that's really what this is about. And every time fear or that inner uneasiness of the heart arises for us during the retreat, it can be just a reminder like, oh, I'm in one way or another back with the attitude, the idea that I have to do something and I'm not doing a good job, I'm missing, I'm bad, or I'm good and nobody's noticing, or some something about doing, doing it well, not doing it well, forgot having to forgot to do it. I still, not very often, I still have dreams. I mean that'd be like at least once every two or three months of realizing I'm near the end of a course and I've forgotten to do all the work. <laughs> a few of you are nodding, right? Or some other version, you know, it's like uh, left your kid somewhere. Because or... it's such a deep imprint in our mind that this sense, this, this sort of archetype of Atlas with the world on his shoulders, this idea that I'm doing this. So, as Roger suggested, you know, if you have a lot of clarity, and especially if you've done retreats before, then feel free to play with the schedule a little bit. But whether you're new or experienced pra- uh, retreat practitioner, use the, the container of the retreat as something to absorb into, as a flow to absorb into. There's time for sitting, there's time for walking, there's time for doing your job, there's time for the meals, there's time to take care of your body in the ways you need to take care of your body. And that's it, pretty much. I mean, I may be forgetting something like drinking tea, but that's pretty much it. And just let that, like, well, you know how to do all those things. You know how to just sit and be, and you know how to walk and be, and you know how to sip tea and just be with that. And you know how to take up your job and just do that. You know, just pour your body and mind into that activity. Just in the same way you can pour your mind into the activity of sitting in a relaxed way. And, you know, the great thing about sitting in a relaxed way, we have this activity of the breath or the activity of the sensation in the body or the activity of hearing. I was listening on my way out uh, this afternoon to... Uh, talk by Ajahn Sushito, a wonderful teacher, Buddhist monk, another one of the Western Buddhist monks. Uh, he is in the Ajahn Chah tradition and uh, the abbot of Chithurst in England. But he travels now pretty regularly to teach here in the West. And uh, he, he, he talked about the movement of chitta. Chitta is the heart-mind. And so the conditioned mind you know, it's just moving. There's just the movement of emotion and content and image. Actually, it's it can be a bit of an insight to be so trusting experience to watch that movement of mental activity without demanding that it makes sense. Even having to have well-formed thoughts is a little neurotic. When the mind is more clear, more relaxed, less neurotic, less entangled, then 
images and thoughts are flowing and they don't even make sense. Or nobody is making sense out of that movement. I once read uh, a very interesting book by, I think it was a Stanford researcher, maybe professor, uh, and he wrote a book a long time ago about lucid dreaming. I think it was in this book where the theory was, and and maybe it's been confirmed by now because this was quite a while ago and they've done a lot of research since then. They have instruments now they didn't have back in the 80s when I think this book was written. But they were thinking that dreams, that what's happening is there's this somewhat random firing somewhere deep in the brain, in the more primitive part of the brain, just like a flow of electrical activity in the brain, just flowing. And then the higher parts of the brain or the more evolved, refined parts of the brain, then their job is to make something up, to sort of turn that activity into something. And anybody who's done a lot of meditation, especially on retreat, knows that there is this very creative part of the mind that can turn any movement into something that's meaningful. But can we just let it be movement without the meaning? So as you're sitting and walking and sipping tea and hiking outside and doing a slow walk in one of the rooms inside and having a meal, chewing the food, swallowing the food, tasting the food, chewing, swallowing, scrubbing the dishes, walking from here to there. Can we just let that activity, you know, immerse, enter the stream without needing to make up meaning about how I'm doing on the retreat? Am I doing it right? And every time we do create some friction, neurotic friction, than to acknowledge the uneasiness, to acknowledge the fear. Oh, okay, this is fear. So that even the neurotic activity of being obsessive, being tight, being fearful, wanting something, we see that as part of the flow too. So it's not about not getting tight, but as quickly as we can, seeing the tightness, seeing the resistance as just a different expression of the flow, just another version or another sort of movement. Oh, so now it's this rough kind of movement, this seductive kind of movement, but it's still movement. And and we can enter the stream there too, like letting that obsessive, neurotic, whatever, have its own course. It's there. Now we're not feeding it because we're aware of it. You can't feed it and be aware of it at the same time. Feeding those obsessive neurotic patterns requires believing it, being caught in the need for the meaning that we seem to be getting from it. But when we're aware it's just that activity, it's not being fed, and it will will fade on its own. It will eventually cease on its own as a movement. It arose, it bloomed, it ceased, it's quiet, another drama arises, it lasts, it ceases. And so we can just have the sense like how many little cycles 
by tomorrow morning, 10.30-11, you will see so many little births and deaths of judgments about whether you're having a good retreat or a bad retreat, whether you're doing it right or not, whether you should have come. You know, all these little... And it's like uh, we could take the bait and think that that... Like, we got to get clear about the truth. Like, am I... Should I be here or not? Am I doing a good job or not? Or we could see it as a movement, just another movement. The arising of that neurotic activity was a movement, it blooming, being very seductive, and not being fed, it fades and ceases. How many dramas have we had today that aren't here now? They've all come and gone, part of the flow, part of the stream. It's so liberating not to need things to change. So I'll end by reading a Mary Oliver poem, one of our matriarchs of wisdom in our country. This is her poem, Can You Imagine? For example, what the trees do. For example, what the trees do, not only in lightning storms, or the watery dark of a summer's night, or under the white nuts of winter, but now, and now, and now, whenever we're not looking. Surely you can't imagine they don't dance, from the root up, wishing to travel a little, not cramped so much as wanting a better view, or more sun, or just as avidly more shade. Surely you can't imagine they just stand there loving every minute of it. The birds or the emptiness, the dark rings of the years slowly and without a sound thickening, and nothing different unless the wind. And then only in its mood comes the visit. Surely you can't imagine patience and happiness like that. So that's a way, you know, to think about the retreat instead of this idea that I have to do it, I'm going to do it, to just let the retreat move us or like it's just going to happen. And our job, our practice, just to let it happen. For whatever it is, good or bad, it's just going to happen. Just like, you know, in my case, the first 56 years, they just happened. And I could tell myself a story about how much work it's been. Or I could, you know, especially now in hindsight, with a little distance, a little space, I could just see how the childhood just happened and the teen years and the young adult years and the middle age years. You know, it's just like, it's just happening. So to just have that sense Play with the possibility of effortlessness. Like it's just going to happen. In some of the moments, the mind will be relatively distracted, caught in thought, obsessing. And sometimes the mind will be relatively clear, free. But our job, our practice is to 
remember, like to practice not forgetting, it's all flow, it's all movement, it's already movement. And there never has been and never can be any friction in that movement. But we can imagine friction. <coughs> I can imagine I'm Atlas holding up the world, or I'm Mark who wants to do a really top-notch teaching this retreat, or you know whatever kind of neurotic trip we might create for ourselves. I can do that. There's definitely we can create the appearance of weight and contraction, fear. But we can remember, even if we don't have perfect faith yet. We can remember it's all moving, it's all flowing, it's already free. So how to trust that? And how to even trust when we're mistrusting it? Like, okay, sometimes it's like that. Mistrust, fear. Sometimes it's like that. So we'll keep coming back to this theme. We'll have our small groups to hear from each other about your own reflection and how the walking and sitting practice supports this reflection on entering the stream, how fear is so convincing that we take a hold of it, how other times there's enough space in the mind to be, sort of allow it to be there without feeling it's a personal problem that has, that I have to resolve. And this really brings us now to the refuges and precepts, which is just an agreement that we have for ourselves and we have together that the way we practice, the one ingredient that really supports this not forgetting, this practice of trust, is creating, using our relationship or our community to support safety. That's why we take all that time for Leslie and Roger to go through all the guidelines and think about all the emails that Denny sent you. I mean, it's just a lot, but it creates like the fact that we have the shared agreement, the shared structure that we're all to some degree familiar with. It creates a lot of safety. And this is part of that, where we're taking refuge together in these three things, the awakened free quality, you know, entering the stream, that effortless presence, that radical trust or radical acceptance, that's the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dhamma, which is we're using the conditions of the present moment as they show up, as they actually are, to realize the freedom of the Buddha. So the Buddha freedom is realized not with better conditions, but with things as they actually are, moment by moment. So we take refuge in Dhamma, the way it actually is, internally and externally. Because that's the freedom, I'm interested in freedom that can manifest here and now, with these conditions, not theoretically manifest when conditions are better, or another way. So we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, Sangha means the beautiful qualities that arise in human beings when they are, in a sense, Buddha knowing Dhamma, that open, awakened, non-grasping presence 
being right in the middle, connected with their life as it's showing up, then what that person does, how they respond, we call sangha. That's sort of like enlightened activity, or you could say kindness and clarity, skillfulness. So we commit to this practice, these three refuges, and then we commit to these precepts, the mindfulness trainings of not harming living beings, not taking what isn't ours. We put aside sexual activity for these four days. Not that sexual activity is inherently bad, but it's often confusing, and especially gathered in a group like this. It's so nice to give each other you know, a break from having to be a sexual... I mean, we're still going to be sexual beings, but like we're not playing that with each other for this time. And noble silence really helps, and also not even looking around much. I was joking with Isaac earlier this evening, you know, like we will probably get to know each other's socks pretty well <laughs> and the bottom third of their slacks, but we don't really need to look around much more than that, with maybe the exception of the small groups. But even there, it's really okay to stay more inward, hear the person, really connect with them, but not go to that social level. And this obviously is connected to the just putting aside the acting out of sexual energy for these days. We undertake the training to refrain from false speech, but that's relatively easy, not speaking much. Undertaking the training not to intoxicate the mind, take your medications as you need, but we're not drinking or using recreational drugs. And even caffeine, you should uh, do what you normally do, but not more than you normally do. Because you don't want to use caffeine as a way to get rid of a yucky mind state. But like you normally do, or slightly less than you normally do. But it's not necessarily the right time to get off of caffeine when you're on a meditation retreat, especially a shorter one. Just keep your pattern as it is. And then I also like to list the other three. So when you go to a Buddhist monastery, you generally would practice with all eight precepts. And whether you take them formally or not, they're just good practice reminders. So the way I interpret the six is, like at a monastery, you'd have your main meal before midday, and then you wouldn't eat much um, after the main meal, maybe some juice in the evening or something like that. But we have a light meal in the evening. You can take it or not, just do what makes sense. But the idea is we're practicing not using food as entertainment. And Leslie and Jane and the others who cook, you know, we have really nice food. But practice using it as medicine. The amount and the pleasantness, like see it as a healing substance you're taking to keep your mind in balance and to keep the body happy. So you eat according to what keeps the body happy and the mind in balance. If you eat too much or the wrong things, that won't work. If you eat too little, that won't work. So that that's a way of changing your relationship to food. It's not entertainment. Because the whole point of being here is to put aside entertainments, because entertainments, by definition, are those activities that keep the mind from being interested in the way it is. Entertainments are little bubbles we inhabit so we don't have to be with the way things are. 
but we want to be. That's why we've all come together. And so that's the next precept, the number seven, is that we undertake the training to refrain from indulging in adornments and entertainments. That's why we're shutting off our smartphones. That's why we don't read. We have Saida Utejaniya's books there, which again should be used as medicine, maybe 10 minutes, get a little Dharma intervention if you need it. But we don't pick up the book because we're bored. We get interested. Oh, sometimes it's like this. We get interested in the boredom. We don't try to distract herself from the boredom. Or there's doubt. Before we pick up the book to get rid of the doubt, notice the doubt. Oh, sometimes it's like this. Can I realize or see the doubt as a movement? You try that a few times. Maybe you can. Maybe you're just getting more entrenched in the doubt. So maybe you need an intervention. Then find a quiet place, sit down, as if a very respected teacher, she were there directly giving you some teachings. And with like a book like Saida Utejaniya's book that are under the the book uh, the bulletin board and put them back when you're done, by the way. You know, you don't even need to decide like what chapter I should read. Just open it up. Because it's like you're sitting down with a teacher and you say, okay, I don't know what I need to know. <laughs> so I'll just let you tell me, you know. And it's sometimes that randomness is just the ticket. So... Use it that way. And if you brought your own book along, if you're new, I just put it aside. If you're an experienced retreatant, then use it the same way that we use Saida Utejaniya's books. So that's the uh, seventh precept to not indulge in entertainments, like figuring out the top 20 movies of all time. Not to indulge in adornments. So when you dress yourself in the morning... You know, you're not trying to make an impression. You're just trying to be comfortable. So dress with that in mind. And then the last is not indulging in sleep. Now, some of you may really crash the first 24 hours of the retreat because you're sleep deprived. So just make adjustments. If you need to take a substantial nap sometime tomorrow, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But once you have an intuitive sense that the body-mind is using sleep to avoid being present, then get interested in that aversion. Because it's very common to use sleep as entertainment or an avoidance tactic. And it doesn't feel good. It doesn't really work anyway. So it's really good not to give in if you can avoid giving in to it. So when you wake up in the morning, you should just get up. Because if you're waking up, it's probably because you don't need sleep. But you can, you know, if you're not clear, just look, you know. Ask yourself in a very straightforward way. Do you need more sleep? Why did you wake up? And because the schedule isn't, you know, enforced, if you need to rest later in the day, if you get up at three in the morning and practice, that's fine. And then if you realize, oh my gosh, I really need more sleep, well then you take more sleep later. Because you don't have to worry about too much. It's nice to come to the 8.30 set, and you need to eat. But other than that, and you need to do your yogi job, but other than that, you're welcome to adapt and adjust the schedule in a way that makes sense. Any questions about these refuges and precepts? 
So let's do them together. We're going to do them in Pali because that's what people have been doing since the time of the Buddha or a language related very close to Pali. Hey so maybe it's worth oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um Accidentally, I only copied one side on some of these. So Yeah, the people who took them at the very end, that means you there aren't any more that have double side. But that's okay. You're just going to miss the fifth precept. And you'll remember that fifth precept is uh, the uh, I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. And then, uh, Jane, maybe you could turn the overhead lights on for this so people can read these more easily. We'll do this together. That will take about seven minutes, and then we'll just sit for a few minutes of silence. And then this will also be the time we'll start our noble silence. Some of you will be meeting with Leslie and Roger to go through some jobs afterwards, but the rest of us can just either continue to sit, do some walking practice, or you might want to go to bed early tonight. Everybody have their sheet. We start by acknowledging and offering (coughs) gratitude to our teacher, the Buddha, who set these teachings in motion some 2,500 years ago. And then we'll do the refuges, each one three times, just in Pali. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Padang saranangachami Tamang Sarnangachami, Sangang Sarnangachami, Dutyampi Pudang Sarnangachami, Dutyampi Tamang Sarnangachami, Dutyampi Sangang Sarnangachami, Tatiampi Budang Sarnangachami Tatiampi Damang Sarnangachami Tatiampi Sangang Sarnangachami Now the precepts both in Pali then in English. Panati Pata where Amani Sikapadang Samariami I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Adinadana where Amani Sikapadang Samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Abrahmacharya where Amani Sikapadang Samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from all sexual activity. Musawada where Amani Sikapadang Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from incorrect speech, 
slander, harsh words, and idle words. And for those who can see five, Sura Miriam Majapamaratana, where Amdani Sikapadang Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. Idame silang magapalanyana sapachayoho tu. So this is just a dedication. May these, this conduct conduce to the highest fruits of liberation. And may we happily share the goodness of our retreat practice with all beings everywhere. Should everyone a good rest tonight? See each other in the morning. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.